Good morning again. It's okay, you don't have to say anything. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs, and you can grab one of those and open it up to page 1013. 1013, James chapter 5. We're at the end now, finishing up our James series. Uh, we're going to be heading into uh, a focus on Advent and the incarnation of Christ as we prepare our hearts at Christmas time to remember and celebrate uh, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, this week we're in James. Next week we'll uh, look at a topical sermon, and then we're going to hit a focus on the incarnation and on Jesus for the month of December. Um, James five twelve through twenty. This series we've called Faith Works, and I've heard a few people say uh, that they were eager for the series to end because it's been so painful, right? Um, we we look, we search for grace, and as I've said, and I hopefully as as we've taught, we've seen there's grace in James, but often how James gets us to the grace uh, is by kind of pummeling us until we say, I give up, I need grace, right? That's kind of James' method. So I'm going to do a little bit more of that today, but I think it's going to be helpful to see this through the lens of what I'm calling uh, get real. Uh, There's a lot of what seems like on your first reading disconnected little lines here at the end, but I think he's summing up something he's been saying the whole time in the book of James is that we we should be real. Our, our faith, our ideas, our loves, and our living and our actions should be integrated. Uh, we're, we should be whole people, and it should all connect. We should get real. We should be authentic. Um, my generation loves authenticity. Um, I don't think we really love it in real life. We just love to talk about it, though, right? So James is going to challenge us to actually be authentic. What does it really look like to get real? He's going to give us some simple instructions. Okay, so verse 12 is where we're going to start. Uh, Commentators disagree over where verse 12 goes because it seems like it's just like hanging in the middle of nowhere. That's what a lot of commentators think. What I'm arguing is that he says this phrase where he says, above all brothers, and so now he's giving us his final words, okay? So he's saying, but above all my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this can be a confusing verse to us because we're all closet legalists, and so you know we're worried, can I, can I make a promise in court? Can I make a marriage vow? As he's saying, those are all bad. And if you look at the context in Matthew 23, where Jesus talks about this, he's very clear that the Jews of the first century had come up with, oaths that you could break because they weren't that serious, and then the really super serious oaths that you couldn't break, right? So the Jews had an elaborate system wherein which they could lie because they'd used the special pinky promise that made it okay, all right? So you can see that context if you want to check that out, so you're not just taking my word for it. You can look to Matthew 23 later this week, but James is just reiterating what Jesus already said. Don't use special little oaths and swearing so that you can lie and be dishonest. Just always tell the truth, okay? Just always be real. Just always get real. So above all, above all, my brothers, don't swear. By heaven, by earth, anything else, let your yes be yes, your no be no, so you won't fall under condemnation. And then I believe now he's continuing with this theme of being real, of being honest, okay? Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Uh, Let me pray for us and ask God to help us. God, we pray that you would meet us here. Uh, We confess our need of you. We confess that we are distracted. Um, We confess, Lord, that we don't want to be found out, that we don't want to be real. We want to do our own thing. And so we ask your spirit to help us because this is a supernatural occurrence. This is a supernatural reality. You need to work. You need to change us. So we ask for your help. We ask by the grace of your son, Jesus. Amen. Peter Sellers is a famous actor uh, that played many different roles, was really good at uh, becoming someone else, right? I mean, that's ultimately what any actor does, but Peter Sellers was known to do that more than others, and he was famous for the uh, Pink Panther movies. If y'all have heard of that, they were pretty popular when I was a little kid. I watched a lot of those. There was a biography about him called The Mask Behind the Mask, and so Peter Sellers becomes this great example of what we do in our life where we take on a role. We take on a character. We become who we are supposed to be. And there's a healthy sense of that, of where we step up, right, to people's expectations. There's a sense in which when I had kids, I was absolutely not ready to be a father, right? But there was a healthy, healthy sense of manning up where I said, okay, I'm going to do father things, even though I am not ready for this. I'm not mature enough yet. And so sometimes we step into a role in a healthy way. But other times, uh, we have no idea who we even are, and it's just one mask after another, and there's really no transparency, no honesty about the brokenness in our own heart, the reality of our own inability, the reality of our need for God. And so Sellers becomes kind of an image of someone who plays so many other roles, he didn't know who he was anymore. There's this one scene uh, or one story that was told in the biography about him He said a fan walked up to him one day and said, are you Peter Sellers? And Sellers answered real curtly, real quickly, not today, and walked on. Sellers confessed that he struggled to even know what his identity was because he was always playing another character. And so my prayer for you, same prayer I have for me, because I struggle with this just as much as anybody, is that we would have the freedom because of God's grace to be real with God and to be real with each other. Because the mask isn't going to do it right? Faking it isn't going to work. One of the great sicknesses of Christianity is this kind of false religion where we gather pretending that we're the people that have it together. So we wear a religious mask, but we're not actually being honest about our own brokenness and our own need for a savior. We're just pretending to be who we think our other Christian friends think we should be. And so at the heart of Christianity, and we've said this multiple times and in multiple ways at our church, for for you to be a member of any church, for you to be a member of Jesus, it has to start with, I'm broken. I can't do this. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. That's what a Christian is, okay? So to whatever degree we pretend that Christianity is something else, we're just giving off a false image, a false picture, a false mask. 
So here he's challenging us to get real. He's challenging us to get real. And so in that first part, he said, above all else, don't swear, right? Don't come up with creative ways to tell lies and pretend. Don't come up with creative ways to make these oaths, to swear and pretend that you're something you're not. Just be honest. Just be honest. Then he continues that theme in the next verse. And look, look at verse 13. He continues it. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I joked earlier that we often want something more profound than this kind of simplicity from the scriptures, right? Uh, One of the ways that I feel like it's a mark of success for me as a preacher is I'm often critiqued for being overly simple and overly complex. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm hitting the middle then, right? Uh, And a lot of times I hear people say, well, I want more like deep, meaty Greek exegesis. So I'm going to give you this in the Greek, okay? The Greek exegesis of this phrase is, are any of you suffering? Let him pray. Are any of you cheerful? Sing praise. Okay, that's, when you really get into the Greek, that's what it's saying, okay? It's saying if, if your life stinks, ask for help. Pray. If, you're like, if your life is going great, give God the praise for that. Say, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. This is great. I thank you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Thank you. And guys, that is profound. That is, that is deep Christianity. Don't start to pretend there's, there's like some other deep extra layer beyond that. That's, that kind of reality is really important for us to be real people. So as I said before, a lot of us in our generation, we like to talk about authenticity. We like to talk about being real. But James is going to show us what it actually looks like. And the first thing that he shows us is that we should get real uh, with leaders. We should get real with leaders. And of course, our generation loves authenticity, but we don't like leaders, um, The church challenges us that there are leaders there to help us, shepherds. They want to guide us. They want to pray for us. They want to encourage us when we're broken. He says it this way in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's going to be a tricky passage for us. Uh, I want to reiterate what I believe the main idea is, and that is that we should get real with our leaders. If we have needs, we should tell our leaders and ask for help. And this is something I need to do just as much as you need to do as a leader. I also need to talk to my other fellow leaders and say, I need help. I'm broken. One of the beauties at our church is I have elders that I can be real with. I don't have to just kind of pretend and just act like everything's okay. I can say, man, I'm, I'm burnt out. I need help. I haven't been getting enough sleep. I've been really distracted, or I've been struggling with placing my identity in ministry instead of in Christ. They'll pray for me. They'll encourage me. You need that too. We need to be real with, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. Now, now, let's dig a little bit into the difficulty of the verse, right? Because this can be distracting because we're, we're trying to figure out, and Christians kind of disagree about this depending on your brand of Christianity. Uh, is he talking about um, if the elders do this just right and they have the right faith, then you'll magically be healed from everything, right? That's one of the confusing things about prayer. Often uh, the scriptures, there's many scriptures that encourage us that if we have faith, you know, it will go well with us. But when you read all of the scriptures, you see it's not like a one-to-one correspondence. It's not like um, if you're ever sick, it's just because you're a a dumb junior Christian. You don't have enough faith, right? And that's really an, an abominable heresy. That's not true. There are verses that people can grab onto to, to teach that false teaching. But you have to read the whole Bible 
read the whole Bible in context, and it doesn't teach that in context. One of the other things I think are helpful for us to understand this verse is that we as modern people often tear apart the physical and the spiritual. One of my favorite little big phrases I learned in seminary was psychosomatic unity. Psychosomatic unity, which is an important thing for us to understand. And that word basically means uh, psycho, means soul or mind, and soma is body. So the idea is that humans are a body-soul oneness. We're made to be one. Now the problem is we all experience a lack of that oneness, right? We all have that like, well, my my mind is uh, awake, but my body is not, or vice versa, or, you know, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, so we know that kind of brokenness where our, our soul and body is kind of separated. It's not one. And I would say it's not one because of the results of sin and the fall. That can be our own personal sin causing problems in our life, or it can be just the general sin of grandma and grandpa, Adam and Eve sinned. And the world has been plunged into brokenness ever since. And so we need to kind of pull those two things back together. In the first century, they overly associated them, right? So in the first century, at the time of Jesus and the apostles, everybody totally put physical and spiritual together, and they recognized that. And then the other extreme is what we do today, where they're two totally different things. They have nothing to do with each other. In reality, there's a great overlap. Sometimes our physical problems can lead us down a trail of really getting to, into a spiritual funk and into a difficulty and into a depression. Sometimes our mental problems can cause physical problems. Sometimes our spiritual problems can cause physical problems vice versa. It can all work together, right? It's over, overlapping. One of my favorite sermons on the subject is a sermon on Proverbs by Tim Keller called The Wounded Spirit. And he talks about just the complexity of the biblical story, how as Christians, we want it to be real simple and put it in boxes and keep them all separate. But biblically, all these things overlap. We are spiritual beings. We are physical beings. And so we need to understand that James blurs things here that we would rather him not blur. We'd rather keep them in separate clean boxes, but he's blurring it together. He's blurring together our physical wellness and our spiritual wellness. Um, The other thing that we need to understand is that God can heal whoever he wants to heal. We see clearly in the Gospels, Jesus healed people left and right. Happened a lot, happened regularly. But we need to understand that the people that Jesus healed, you know what happened? Like later on, they got sick and they died, right? So the normal working of this world is our bodies are decaying. Uh, I'm sorry for those of you under 30, that's just where you're headed, okay? It's all all falling apart, okay? And so that, that is normal. So can God heal? Can God do miraculous things? Yes. Does he? Yes. Should we ask for it? Yes. Does he have the right to say no to us when we ask? Yes, he does. He can say yes or he can say no. So we ask for healing, we expect healing, we trust for healing. Sometimes God heals, sometimes God doesn't. We would say ordinarily, ordinarily, that's not how it happens on an everyday basis. Really, even when you look back at the Bible, you see miracles and and these kinds of healings being punctuated throughout Scripture. We tend to just think of the Bible just being full of miracles on every page. But really, it's the time of Moses and Joshua. You saw a lot of crazy stuff happen. In the time of Jesus and the apostles, you saw a lot of crazy stuff happen. And there's this other little section with Elijah and Elisha where a lot of crazy stuff happened. There's just those three time periods. When, when you look at the Bible, it's not, it wasn't like every day on every, every page. And so I don't think we should expect every day of our life to be full of miracles. I think the way the New Testament teaches us the greatest miracle is that we would turn from our sin 
and our false saviors and trust in Jesus. That is the most fantastic miracle that can take place in our life. And I believe James, again, is mixing those things right here. So let's look at it again. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So he is calling on us to be authentic and real and ask for help when we need help. Are you depressed? Call for help. Call your leaders. Call your small group leaders, your mentor. Call the elders of the church. We'll come pray for you. Talk to us. Make an appointment with someone. Ask someone to pray for you. And then he also mixes in this whole anointing with oil thing. What what does that mean? Uh, In the first century, anointing with oil was both very, very practical and it was also symbolic, right? Like if you want to have friends over for dinner, you might uh, light scented candles, right? That's one of those things that's like practical and it's also symbolic. It's symbolic. I, I care for you. I'm doing something special here. And oh, it smells nice. And oh, it covers up the weird smell of the thing I burned earlier. You know, I mean, there's all these, you know, it's like a mixing of those two worlds. Oil in the first century was, was medicinal, right? How many of you use the oils like instead of medicine or, or with your medicines? A lot of, that's becoming more popular, right? A lot of people do that, uh, have special uh, I think it's called Olbus oil or some special German oil that one of our German ladies, Helga, gave me for when I have a cold, right? When it's hard for me to speak, I can put some oil on a cloth and, and snort this stuff, and it makes me feel better, right? <laughs> um, so oil has real medicinal properties. People used oil all the time, back then, a lot more back then than we do now. And so a way we could read this is they're saying, okay, call the elders, and they'll pray for you. Now, also do the normal stuff that people do when you're sick or feeling bad, right? They'll give you oils, they'll light candles, they'll call the doctor. You know, they'll do the other physical things as well. Now, we can think of it in in that term of just being a normal, physical, we need spiritual help, we also need physical help, right? We need prayer and medicine. Don't separate them out and think, I'm a Christian, so I don't go to the doctor anymore. No, we go to the doctor. God gives us things to help us physically. We also are going to pray and ask God to heal us. He's the ultimate healer. So again, James is mixing these worlds and saying, yeah, do, do both. And we also can't forget that in Scripture, there's a great ceremonial part of oil as well. So I could say, when people call us as elders and say, I'm sick, will you anoint us with oil and pray for us? I could say, well, you know, oil is just medicine, so get the medicine from your doctor. I'll just pray for you. We don't do oil around here. Well, no, we do the oil too because it has a symbolic um, showing of us, helping us to smell and feel the presence of the Lord. So it's always been used symbolically as well. Like God's with you. It's going to be okay. So it can stimulate our faith as well. So there's those physical kind of practical reasons to use oil when you pray with people. There's also um, ceremonial encouragement, symbolic uses here. So he's saying pray and help physically. And then there's this other part here where he talks about the prayer of faith saving, right? Call for the elders, let them pray, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The way I would translate this is, and the sinner's prayer will save the sick person because the Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. From the grammar and from all the commentaries I've read, I wouldn't say this is about the faith of the prayers, the people that pray. I would say this is about the prayer of faith. This is like, if you pray the prayer of faith, if you pray what we call in our context, the sinner's prayer, if you come before God broken and say, God, I need you to heal me, he will ultimately heal you. 
So we would describe that sinner's prayer as the prayer of a broken sinner coming before God and saying, I'm needy before you. I've tried to save myself and I can't. I need you to save me. Will you save me? A recognition that that's what Jesus came to do. He died on the cross for our sins to set us free from sin and death and he rose from the dead so that when the father looks at us, he sees us as his very own child and he delights in us. We just sang that song earlier, good, good father. First service, I bawled like a baby when we sang that song. I only get like three months of tears at a, at a time, so I, I couldn't cry the second service, but, but it just broke me. It just broke me be, being overwhelmed that God, God really loves me, me, that an idiot like me, he loves me. I've messed up. I don't know about you. Maybe y'all haven't sinned. I've sinned. I've sinned in significant ways. I've betrayed people. I've hurt people, and God has forgiven me for that through Jesus. He adopts me into his family, and he loves me. And I hope you would come to know that same love in your own life. He delights in you as his very own child, that he's pleased with you. Not in the way your earthly father failed you, but in the way of a good, good, perfect father who loves you perfectly. And so that, that prayer of faith, that will save us. We will be raised up. We look forward to a resurrection. So Christian teaching is that because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we are now reconciled back to God. So there are two sides of healing, again, the spiritual and the physical. We are now spiritually healed, and the Lord will raise us up, and we look forward to complete physical healing, right? So we might pray for you, and God might heal you, and then 10 years later, you die, because that's the world we live in. But he will raise you up, because we are headed for a resurrection. Jesus proved that. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. So Jesus rose from the dead, and that means our hope is that we will also be raised from the dead. That is what Christians believe. That is what Christians have always believed. We're saved now, spiritually reconciled to the Father. He loves us, and we're going to be saved completely. My knee won't hurt anymore. My head won't hurt anymore. My gums will grow back someday, right? Everything is going to work. There will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more pain. We will be raised up. So I believe he's saying... It's both and, and it starts with us confessing our need, getting real with our leaders. Call the leaders. If there's problems, call the leaders. I have a picture here of a guy falling asleep at work. I read this story about a guy who had a sprained wrist. He has a sprained wrist, and he goes in to see the doctor about his sprained wrist, and he's kind of got some pride issues with his anxiety, and so he doesn't tell the doctor that he's already seen some other doctor, and he's on anxiety medicines. So the doctor gives him something for his pain, reduce the swelling, make him feel better, whatever it might be with the sprained wrist, and he just falls asleep and sleeps all day long on his desk at work because the medications don't go together. So the doctor didn't know he was on this other medication for anxiety, right? So whatever it was, you know, Valium doesn't mix with Xanax. I don't know what the combination was, but because of his pride and not being willing to admit his brokenness, he became more broken. I I hope you see that. I hope you don't have to learn that the hard way in your own life. Like it works a whole lot better if you would just admit your brokenness up front instead of waiting until you're more broken. Say, I, I need help. I'm not a superhero. We just went to our uh, Acts 29 pastor's conference with a bunch of the uh, staff and elders from the church. Had a great time. One of the themes that kept coming up again and again is how we often want to pretend that we're something we're not. We want to pretend that we're something we're not. Instead of just resting and, yeah, I'm broken. Jesus, I need you. Be encouraged that, that Jesus is enough. 
So what does that look like? Just practically, if you're broken, call for help. Call your small group leaders. Call us at the church. We'd love to pray for you. We'll even anoint you with oil. Whatever it takes. We'll throw everything in the kitchen sink at you. But we'll pray for you and want to lead you towards your own, your own situation where your soul before the Lord trusts. You have that prayer of faith in your own heart. You're trusting that God is good. The next thing, I went way over. The next thing is getting real with each other. So this, this looks like something very practical. We call the elders of the church and say, pray for me. I'm broken. I need you. Uh, we begin to trust in Jesus maybe in ways we haven't before. And then James says this spins out into a way we live our life as Christians, okay? So then we live our lives this way with each other. It becomes a, a pattern of how Christians do life. And as modern people, we'd much rather live our life alone, but Christian people should live our life with others, being real, getting real with other people. So 16 says it this way, therefore, because all this is true, because God can heal you, because God loves you, because God raises us up, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And again, something I didn't say linguistically, physical healing and spiritual healing throughout the Bible, it's the, it's the same word and the words are used overlapping, okay? So those words are used back and forth depending on context, they're, they're used in overlapping sense. So again, he's blurring physical and spiritual here. And he's saying, confess your sins to one another. Just make that a pattern. Make that what it looks like to be a Christian, that you get with each other, you confess your sins to each other. And we would say you're not going to grow in your faith if you continue to um, keep one foot in the religion of uh, American individualism and one foot in Christianity. You need to go ahead and pull that foot out of American individualism and say, I can't save myself. I can't just John Wayne it and fix myself, but I need other people. I need community. Don't get me wrong, I love John Wayne, but that shouldn't be your religion, okay? So you've got to pull a foot out of that kind of American thinking that I can save myself and be a Christian American. It says, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility, but I need others in my life. The New Testament's full of these one another commands. Love one another because Christ loved you. Forgive one another because Christ forgave you. Bear with one another because Christ bears with you. Share your resources with one another because Christ gave all your, his resources for you. So we live life together. Just one of the basic principles is you confess your sins, say, hey, I'm struggling, will you help me? You don't confess every single sin that you've ever committed, okay? Your salvation and your growth is not dependent on you remembering every bad thing you ever did because, uh, trust me, you've done more bad things than you'll be able to remember, okay? You just confess, I'm a sinner. But when specific things come up, you say, hey, I'm struggling in this area, will you pray for me, will you help me? And God will show up through the prayers of your friends. It says here, the prayer of righteous person has great power as it is working. So practically what this looks like is we confess to each other and we pray for each other. We call that structurally at the church small groups. Like we'd like you to get into a small group where you study the Bible together, pray for each other, apply the scriptures in your own life in a natural way. Um, that's one of the structures. Another structure we call covenant groups where it's just a couple of you. You know, a couple guys getting together, three guys getting together, three ladies getting together, praying for each other, encouraging one another. Um, so, so that's what it looks like. Um, it can be highly structured or it can be completely just friend to friend, right? It doesn't have to be something that the church leaders have put on a calendar and made you do, right? This is something you can just do. You can meet another Christian and confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. But then he says, the prayer of a righteous man prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
So we might then think he's now taking away what he just gave us, right? It's the normal Christian life. We all pray for each other. We all help each other out. And then he says, because righteous people can really do a lot with their prayer life. And you're like, wait, I thought we just talked about how none of us are righteous and we all struggle. You know, so what is he, what is he saying here? Well, through Christ, we are righteous. And just to make sure we're not confused about this, he's going to go on and use an illustration of Elijah. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So what is he saying? Elijah was a regular dude. He was just a man, just like you and me. We get sick. We're, we're broken. We have to call the elders. We're all messed up. We can't get out of bed in the morning. We have cancer, whatever it may be. Elijah was a man just like us. He was a man just like us. Then he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Go back and read the Elijah and Elisha stories. They're fascinating. Uh, Elijah has this great contest with the false prophets, and he wins the contest. So it's like this prophet's Super Bowl, and he wins, and it's awesome, and God shows up in a big way. Remember I said earlier, Elijah and Elisha, that's one of the places where God shows up miraculously in these stories. And man, Elijah's the winner, right? All the bad guys are killed, and so you would think it's just like, This victory moment where he soaks it in, but you know what he does? He runs away, he's depressed, he doesn't want to talk to God. He's really mad at God, he's frustrated. Like, what is the deal with you, man? You're so moody. So Elijah is a guy just like us, right? We see God move in our lives in powerful ways. We're like, God, you don't love me, what are you doing? We're depressed, we can't eat, we're tired, we're sick, we run away, we're hiding from people, we're afraid. And like God just proved to us that he's there. We're like, God, you're not there. You've forgotten about me. That's exactly what happened in Elijah's life. So James is grabbing Elijah, who did some of the most incredible superhero things in the Bible, to remind us, hey, he was a dude just like us. He was a man with the nature just like ours. He forgot God just like we forget God. He struggled just like we struggle. Prayer is still effective. God works through his people as we pray for each other. So don't give up on just the boring, mundane, helping each other out. I found a great quote by Alec Moltier when he's, he's talking about how we really want the, the spectacular healing stuff, right? But we're bored with the mundane parts of the Christian life. And he says it this way, we must be careful lest we overvalue the marvelous and the miraculous at the expense of the mundane and the providential. So, so many of you may never see God intervene in some sort of supernatural, miraculous way. But again, remember, the most miraculous thing God does is he saves people from themselves, from our suicidal love affair with being our own gods. He saves us from that. One of the means he uses to do that is we confess our sins to one another and we pray for each other. It's mundane Christian life. We live life out and we're real with each other. God uses that to save us and to change us. So we should be real with each other. I have a picture here, guys, praying together. Um, just regular guys praying for each other, asking God to intervene, asking God to be real. That, that's where we would hope to take you. Uh, if you come to Grace Bible Church on Sunday mornings and you show up and you're encouraged by the gospel, um, the next step for you would be beyond just trusting the gospel as, a, as an individual hearer, would be to then walk with other Christians to grab a a Christian buddy and say, let's pray together, or to join one of our small groups or Bible studies or classes where you you can then live live life with other people. 
and, and be real with others as Christians are called to do. So that's the next step. Finally, he says that we should get real with wanderers. Get real with wanderers. He says it this way in verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So he's talking about, I think, really both those who wander in the sense of uh, our normal state of being children of Adam and Eve that wander and want to be our own gods, never knowing Christ. He also could be talking about those who have been a a part of the congregation of the faithful and have wandered away from the faith. Either way, he's talking about those who are not actively trusting in Jesus, and he's saying if you go after them, if you're real with them, you can bring them back. Again, God works through the mundane of ordinary people like you and me talking to people. We don't, we don't have to be superheroes. We can just pursue people in love. We can say, I'm, I'm worried about you. This is dangerous. You're going the wrong direction. I have a picture here of a, a wrong way sign. This is very unhip in our culture, very uncool to ever say uh, your life is headed for danger, right? In, in some ways, we, we get accused of being bigots when we say, um, sin is going to hurt you. That, that can make us very scared. Right? That can make us feel nervous as a culture that more and more now, it's uncool to be a Christian. It's unacceptable to believe that there is right and wrong in the universe and God decides what it is. And some people are doing right things and some people are doing wrong things. All of us, to some degree, have this temptation and desire to do the wrong things. We've all done it to some degree. And God offers forgiveness through Jesus. So that's a very, it's a very bigoted, crazy, weird thing in our culture's eyes that we would actually say, no, it's, it's a sin to break the Ten Commandments. You know, like it's a sin to disobey God. And culture would say, you can't say that. And what I want to encourage you with is that it's okay to just be real. Don't think that like 20 years ago when it was more cool to invite your friend to church, that God could work through that, but he can't work now that it's not cool to go to church, right? Like, Don't be afraid of where the culture is going because it's never been cool to give up your own personal idols and trust in Jesus. It's never been cool. Might have been more or less cool to, you know, to show up at a mega church that everybody loves and that'll wax and wane, you know? And we'll try, to, we'll try to leverage whatever we can out of the culture. You know, if we can get more people in the door, we're going to try to get more people in the door. But then we're going to preach the gospel of, you need to bow the knee to Jesus. You can't save yourself. So we're encouraged to get, to get real, uh, to not worry about what the culture says, but to really be honest with people and say, you're, you're wandering and there's danger there and I love you. I don't want you to go down that road. It's the wrong way. So first of all, for those of you that have, been walking with Jesus for a long time, one of the most dangerous things that can happen uh, is that you begin to isolate yourself from non-Christian people, so you're not even sure if you know anybody that doesn't know Jesus. So I'd encourage you to find some more friends, okay? That's my prayer for us as a people, that we'd be a people that are, are known just like Jesus as being friends of sinners, you know, that we go to the wrong places and show up with the wrong people because we love wanderers and we pursue them. That'd be the first thing that I would pray for. And then I'd say, pray, pray for these friends that you find. Pray for them, that they would understand their need for Jesus. And then be real. Don't, don't fall for thinking that if, if I'm perfect and shiny and I have it all together, 
then they'll love Jesus too because they'll see that Jesus is the one that makes your life perfect and shiny and you know everything's fine and you never have any worries. Be real with your non-Christian friends as well. Now, I wouldn't depend on them in the same way that you would depend on someone that will point you to Jesus and trusting in him, right? There is a difference there. But God uses that authenticity in helping people see, oh, they're, they're a sinner, they're a struggler, just like I'm a struggler, and helping point them to Jesus being the answer, not us cleaning our life up as the answer. So make sure you're always pointing people to Jesus and not your own shininess. I want to wrap up as we think about being real by going back to an illustration I used um, about eight years ago when we were teaching through James before, uh, and then at the conference this weekend, a, a, another speaker used the same illustration. I was like, that's my illustration. He stole it from me. Um, I was like, no, no, I guess it's okay. It's just, you know, it's a pretty good universal picture. In The Wizard of Oz, they go to see the wizard, right, to find healing and help for all their problems. You have all these broken people, Scarecrow, Tin Man, Dorothy, you know, all these people with problems. They've come to the wizard, and the wizard, when they get there, his, he's like this big glowing pyrotechnic head, right, with a booming voice, and he's scary, and he's impressive, right, like you would hope a wizard would be. Um, and then the curtain gets pulled back, and you hear him saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Ignore that little guy pulling the knobs. I'm the big, powerful wizard that I'm projecting. And one of the things we were challenged with at the conference, and I'm challenged with every day as a Christian leader, is I want to project a reality that, that might not be reality. I want to project a power that I may not have. I want to look like something more impressive than I really am. And I want you to understand that I have that same temptation just like you do. I know we all struggle with that, and we all struggle with saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Just look at the false me. Don't look at the real little dumpy me behind the curtain, right? And James, as I said at the beginning, he's just been pounding us and pounding us and pounding us to trust that Jesus' grace is enough. And it's been painful, right? Because we don't want to let go of our false self. We don't want to let go of the false me. We don't hold on to that because that's our, our Savior. The speaker that used the illustration this weekend added a dimension that I never really thought about. He said, you know what God used? The, the grace that God often uses in our life is like that little dog. It was that dumb little dog, Toto, right? You know the little dog, Toto, in The Wizard of Oz? It's this cute little dog wagging his tail, and he runs up and pulls the curtain back. God's going to send things to your life. They're going to be like that pesky little dog, Toto. Weak, stupid, wandering, and they're going to break you, and they're going to reveal who you really are. What I want to encourage you is to see those as, as really as a grace, as a, a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. God sends those, those wake-up calls that pull back the curtain and help us to admit who we really are. I just encourage you to surrender to that process, to be real with the leaders that God's put around you, with each other, um, with those of your friends that, that don't know Christ as well, so that we can find hope in Jesus. He's our only hope. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you come to us in grace. And Father, we confess that sometimes it's, it's scary for us. It's painful because um, we've invested a lot of years in these other saviors. So I pray that as you pull back that curtain, as you expose the false saviors that we've been trusting in, that you would help us to run to your arms to trust that you are good enough that you can take care of us, that you can rescue us, 
We thank you that you showed that to us. You showed your character to us through Jesus, who died for us, who took our sins upon himself, who rose from the dead. Help us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.